Well, Shabbat Shalom. Good Shabbos. It's so nice to see all of you this morning. So the last few weeks, we have been going through a series through the letters of John. And uh, it's hard to go through a series when there's so many other awesome readings as well. You know, I, I kind of wanted to divert to talk about some really cool things with the Ten Commandments or whatever, but we're sticking with the letters of John because there's a lot here that is really relevant, not only to us, but the world in which we live today. If you remember that John's three letters were written during a very tumultuous time that was happening within the body of Messiah. The apostle John fled from Jerusalem around the time that the temple was destroyed, right? And he took Miriam, Mary, Yeshua's mother, with him, and he fled to where? Ephesus. And it was there that he lived out the rest of his life. And at the end of the first century, he wrote his gospel, the fourth gospel, the gospel of John, as well as these three letters, in order to address some of the terrible kinds of teachings that had started to crept in to the community. During this tumultuous time when the Jewish community is scattered from, as Jews are kicked out of Jerusalem and spread around, remember what this also meant, because at this time, the followers of Yeshua were still a sect of Judaism. By all the Jews being kicked out of Jerusalem, the temple completely destroyed, and the Romans taking over and renaming the city Elia Capitolina and erecting a, a temple to Zeus on the Temple Mount. What that meant was also the center of the followers of Yeshua was also destroyed as everybody was scattered around. And so we know what ended up happening is as the apostles were spread out throughout the empire, that God used that in order to then spread the message even more and even farther than what was already happening. It's important to really understand the connectedness to the spreading of the message with the destruction of the temple. That as always happens, out of this tragedy out of the ashes of destruction, somehow God is able to still resurrect some sense of hope. So John wrote his three brief letters to address conflicting theologies and behavioral concerns that were being taught and to bring a message of hope and encouragement to people whose lives have been turned upside down. This week we're in 1 John chapter 4. Now, it begins with something interesting that in many circles, if someone claims to be a prophet, or if somebody just gets up and gives a word, that's supposed to be from God directly, and you're not supposed to question it, right? <laughs> is that so? This is one of the issues John is going to be addressing right away in chapter 4 of his letter. And then the rest of the chapter is going to deal again with the difficult message of love that we were talking about last week. So he begins, let's look if you have uh, a Bible with you, otherwise you can just listen in. He says, dear friends, don't trust every spirit. On the contrary, test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Here is how you will recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit which acknowledges that Yeshua the Messiah came as a human being is from God. And every spirit which does not acknowledge Yeshua is not from God. 
In fact, this is the, per, the spirit of the anti-Messiah. You have heard that he is coming. Well, he's here now in the world already. He begins by saying, don't trust every spirit. By saying this, not only is this a reference to spiritual dynamics, but also to the motivation of individuals. According to New Testament scholar Karen H. Jobes, John wants his readers to recognize that there are other forces at work other than the Holy Spirit, and he refers to those forces as spirits that must be tested. Do you understand that? But also he's talking not about the motivational, both spiritually and internally within individuals and these false teachers, but he's recognizing that these are individuals. These are the false teachers that he's referring to. Karen Jobes goes on to note that John's readers need to understand that not everything said or done by someone who professes to have the Holy Spirit is actually from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. That is why we must learn to use discernment and to test everything. Over and over again, we are taught to weigh what we are taught with what? Scripture, right? This is not a new concept. One of my favorite passages is one that most people refer to all the time, but they miss the context. Paul, in Acts, I think it's 14, in Acts uh, 14, I'm sorry, in Acts 17, goes into a synagogue in Berea, right? It's a synagogue. And something amazing happens. It says they warmly welcomed his message, but every single day checked the Tanakh to see if what he was saying was true. What's interesting is they didn't check the Tanakh because they were skeptical. They checked the Tanakh because it was the right thing to do. It says they warmly welcomed his message, and yet every day they checked the Tanakh to make sure what he was saying was true. And what did Paul do? Say, how dare you ever question a rabbi? That's not what he says. He says, good for you, because you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. Whether it's myself, whether it's anybody, never, ever, ever just take my word for it. I take seriously the responsibility that every time I stand before you that I better be teaching something that not only I believe, but I believe is from God. Now, what I'm not saying is I'm far from perfect, but I do my best as a human you know, being to try to teach what is right and noble. But you have the responsibility to also be checking it out yourself to make sure that what we are wrestling with as a community is really from the Ruach, is from God, right? It goes on to say, <laughs> because many false prophets have gone out into the world, remember he's saying that this, during this tumultuous time, and also as the earliest apostles are now dying off, because this is now the end of the first century, as most of them have been killed. Remember, the one who outlived everybody else was who? John. He's the last of the apostles to die because the, he's the only one who didn't die a what? As a martyr. He didn't die as a martyr. And it says in his gospel it was because of his faithfulness in relationship to Yeshua. Not that the other ones weren't faithful, but it was part of his reward for the relationship that he had with Yeshua. 
John's concern in his letters are that false teachers or prophets are teaching people something contrary to what, is, what was taught by the apostles. So John writes, and the way we are to know whether the spirits are really from God is we are to test them, which is something that we should be doing despite the fact that in many circles, what is taught shouldn't be questioned. And I'm talking about there's an obviously a respectful way to test things, right? It doesn't mean you should just jump up and, you know, and be questioning things or whatever. There's a respectful way to do that, but we should be doing that. Paul writes, and I love this because it was something that I missed when I was growing up. I, I never caught this until just a few years ago when Rabbi Stuart Dowerman pointed this out. In 1 Corinthians 14, when it's talking about prophecy, and it's saying that I wish, you know, I wish more people had this gift. What's interesting is it also says in 1 Corinthians 14, 29, let two or three prophets speak while the others weigh what is said. Just because somebody gets up and claims to be a prophet and has a word, obviously we should be respectful of somebody who has clearly demonstrated that they have a gift, but still it says that others are supposed to be there weighing it. what is said is actually from God. Remember, in this passage in 1 Corinthians 14, when it's talking about the spiritual gifts, it also says there is a proper order for the way that they must be done. This is why Paul also writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, but do test everything and hold on to what is good. Right? And how do we test these teachings or false prophets? In the issue that John is dealing with in his letter, the way to test whether or not this is true teaching is it says, every spirit which acknowledges that Yeshua the Messiah came as a human being is from God, and every spirit which does not acknowledge Yeshua is not from God. In fact, this is the spirit of the anti-Messiah. When John speaks of Yeshua's coming into the world, it is important to note that he is not just speaking of a visible appearance, but rather his coming as a salvific act. That his coming was an act of atonement, right? The understanding that Yeshua the Messiah, the Son of God, became a human being to reveal God the Father is at the heart of John's orthodoxy, meaning his way of understanding things. Also, the emphasis that Yeshua came in the flesh might give us a glimpse into the false teachings that, you, that John is trying to address. Noticeably, one, possi one possible teaching was a concept of, uh, known as docetism. And the, the docetists believed that and there are two major errors. Let me just back up for a second. There are two major errors that were kind of creeping in very early into the community that uh, the remaining apostles and then their, their disciples had to deal with in the, in the coming century. The two competing views, one were the Docetists who believed that Yeshua was so divine that there's no way that he was really actual human being, right? They, that in fact, the word docetism comes from the Greek word that means only appeared to be. It only seemed as though he was human. So even when it talks about he ate and he drank and he walked among people, it's really kind of allegory. It just means that Yeshua only appeared to do those things, but in reality, he's a God, and so he, can't, he doesn't really do any of that stuff. That's a heretical view, right? The flip side 
which is actually the very common view now within the Jewish community in, in the perception of Mashiach, of Messiah, is that the Messiah is not divine. He is just all human, right? So when Yeshua did all of these things, it's because he was just a great human being that might have had a special anointing on him from God, but he wasn't divine. This also is a heresy. And we know from all of these kind of tensions that were existing within the early community, that the balance, and this is also what scripture says, the balance is to understand as difficult as the concept is, the incarnation is that Yeshua is both fully God and fully human, right? It's a difficult concept, but that's the reality. It's a balance between these two things. And so this kind of gives us a glimpse at some of the teachings that John is dealing with. As Karen Jobes points out, it's hard to, as some people want to claim that this is only an argument against the Docetists, because several other kinds of heretical views could also be uh, in discussion with this. So he goes on in verse 4, you children are from God and have overcome the false prophets because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world's viewpoint, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we distinguish the spirit of truth from the spirit of error. So he's going on to say that how we are able to test things is also depending on what the message is being, the message that is being received. He begins by saying, you children, it's, it's not as condescending in Greek as it sounds in English. John is again using this term children as both a general reference as a way, and as a way to refer to those who are not yet mature in their faith, right? And again, to his audience, this would not, would not, have, sound it would not have sounded condescending because this is the language we read over and over again in the Tanakh, right? For example, Israel is called all the time B'nai Israel, the children of Israel, right? And other people groups are often referred to as B'nai, the children of. Um, children is not necessarily a helpful translation, um, but it gives you an idea that when the idea of B'nai, of children or people, is really just a reference to a people group. B'nai Israel is really the Israelites, or B'nai Moab is really the Moabites, right? B'nai it doesn't literally mean children, it just... Okay, just tell me to move on. All right, so John encourages his audience that they are able to overcome this false teaching because the power of God within them is greater than the spiritual forces at work behind the false teachers, right? So he's trying to give them encouragement that you can do this, you can rise against this false teaching and overcome it because the power within you is greater because it's from God. And then he goes on into this next section, beginning in verse 7, where John redirects his focus again from the false teaching back to love and particularly identifies both the source and definition of love as God himself. God's love is most supremely expressed in the sending of his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins that we might live eternally through him. In verse 10, we read, Beloved friends, agapitoi is what it says in Greek. Agapitoi, beloved friends, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves has God as his father and knows God. 
Those who do not love do not know God because God is love. Here is how God showed his love among us. God sent his only son into the world so that through him we might have life. Here is what love is. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be a kapara, an atonement for our sins. The rationale for the love command here is that love is a defining characteristic of God. Therefore, those who have been born of God are also defined by their love for others. This is a difficult thing, right? And it sounds so much easier than it really is. In verse 8, he says, Those who do not love do not know God because God is love. Personal knowledge of God and love for others, as God defines it, are inseparable. John's exhortation therefore implicitly demands self-examination. It's meant to provoke you, to be convicted. It's meant to make you say, you know what? I am not doing that. And then in verse 9, here is how God showed his love among us. God sent his only son into the world so that through him we might have life. You see the language expressed in his gospel in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only and unique son so that through him, right, we might not perish but have everlasting life. In verse 10, here is what love is. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the cup of rough for sins. John again here uses language and imagery from Yom Kippur, which we initially encountered in, encountered in chapter two, right? When he says a kapara, he's on purpose giving you a, I mean, he didn't use the Hebrew term, but the Greek term is the same idea. The point here is he wants his readers to associate Yom Kippur with the language that he's using. Right, Because he just mentioned Yeshua's arrival is an atonement. <laughs> Forgiveness of sin is at the heart of atonement and is the clearest expression of God's love. When we say God is love, we also need to be careful that we do not define love in a distorted or misunderstood way. For example, our society has often a distorted view of love which is not what John is talking about here. Proper interpretation requires allowing John to define what he means by love, and John does this. By love, he means for John that love is defined by right behavior in relationships, which we will see in the next verse. Throughout the Tanakh, when we say that we are to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and all of our might, it's difficult for us in our Western culture, especially with our conceptions of love, that we think that we just should go around having warm, fuzzy feelings for God, right? Instead of recognizing that throughout the Tanakh, love, which can be accompanied by warm, fuzzy feelings. <laughs> I don't want to, you know, poo-poo warm, fuzzy feelings. But it's covenantal language. Love God because he loves us. What is expected of that? You shall teach it to your children. You shall do all of these things, right? The idea is that love is action. Love is a verb. We all know this. There are times in all of our relationships 
whether it's a romantic relationship, whether it's a family member, whether it's a friend, that we might deeply, deeply love them, but in the moment, we might not necessarily have warm, fuzzy feelings for them, right? It doesn't mean that love is absent. What it means is there are times where love, not times, there are always, love should be more, much more than feelings. Not that feelings shouldn't be there, but love is an action. It's a, it's a choice. It's a commitment that you make. When we say we're supposed to love God, it means we're supposed to obey God and walk in his ways. Why? Because that's how we demonstrate that we really do love him. But it also says that covenantal language is then to us, that God will do these things because it's part of who God is. It's part of the agreement, right? God will do this for us if we do this. I'm not talking about kind of a, a cheap kind of thing uh, that you can manipulate God, right? What I'm saying is this is just part of the relationship. My wife and I love each other, which means we have responsibilities towards one another. And if I fall short on those responsibilities, I am failing in the covenant relationship that I made with her when we got married. The same thing happens with us. And this is why over and over and over again, the Israelites, we... We're, being, we're, we're constantly punished because we kept falling short and we still fall short, right? Nobody's perfect. The point is, Scripture helps us to more and more be able to walk in His ways. And the purpose of the Ruach, as we've talked about before, all throughout the prophets, especially, for example, in Ezekiel 36 and 37, yes, the Holy Spirit is our comforter and does all these things, but one is the primary reason, according to the prophets, that the Holy Spirit is placed within us. It says, and I will place my spirit within you so that you will be able to observe my mitzvot. Right? That you will be able to do these things because this is the way that you express that you are really from God. So let's move on. <laughs> Verse 11. Beloved friends, it is if this is how God loved us, we likewise ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains united with us, and our love for him, for him has been brought to its goal in us. He is now, this, here is how we are to know that we, are, that we remain united with him and he with us. He has given to us from his own spirit. Moreover, we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent his Son as a deliverer into the world. If someone acknowledges that Yeshua is the Son of God, God remains united with him and he with God. Also, we have come to know and trust the love that God has for us. God is love, and those who remain in this love remain united with God, and God remains united with them. John returns here to his common theme of love for one another. And he acknowledges that how we know this is true is this relationship, right? That it's expressed in the way that not only we love God, but God's relationship to us. And if we keep reading in verse 17, here is how love has been brought to maturity within us. Meaning this is how we know that we're actually growing spiritually, as the Messiah is, so are we in the world. This gives us confidence for the day of judgment, right? The day to come. There is no fear in love. On the contrary, love that has achieved its goal gets rid of fear because fear has to do with punishment. The person who keeps fearing has not been brought to maturity 
in regard to love. He says there is no fear in love. Whenever we are overcome by fear, we need to always acknowledge that that is not from God. I'm not talking about fear as reverence or, you know, normal kinds of fear, like if I'm about to bungee jump, (laughs) that I'm not like seized with terror for a moment. I'm talking about people who live in fear, who are antagonized, who stay up late at night because they're afraid to fall asleep. This is not from God. So we need to find ways for God to deliver us of that kind of fear. Because it also says in scripture that perfect love casts out all fear. And so he's encouraging people, don't live in fear or hesitation. This is what Yeshua says, right? Don't worry about what you will wear, what you will eat, where you will sleep. These are hard things to do. All of us worry at times. If you lose your job, where am I going, you know, how am I going to pay the rent next month or all these things, which is, that's normal. But we also have to, in these trials and tribulations, learn to trust God, which is so hard. (laughs) It's hard to do, but it's what we're supposed to do. And he concludes by contrasting love and hate in the final verses. We ourselves love now because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For if a person does not love his brother, whom he has seen, then he cannot love God, whom he has not seen. Yes, this is the command we have from him. Whoever loves God must love his brother too. This is what we've talked about over and over and over again. From a Jewish perspective, from a biblical perspective, You cannot treat people like garbage and expect your relationship with God to be okay. Why? Because the two go hand in hand. Yeshua said you can summarize all of the mitzvot by two things, right? Which are these two tablets that we talked about last week. These two tablets are meant to give us a visual of a summary of all of the mitzvot, right? That all 613 commandments can be collapsed into 10 and the 10 can be collapsed into the very first one. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, everything else is commentary, right? Because I did this for you, the rest of this you should do as a result of your being delivered. But these two tablets here, on one side, as we talked about last week, is our, the first five... Uh, commandments have to do with our relationship with God, right? As we call, uh, that the rabbis say, between a person and God. These are the commandments that have to do with the way that we, that we treat God. The other ones are relationships with one another, right? This is why when Yeshua says, it all boils down to our love for God and our love for one another, he's not just making this up or somehow giving us new commands that violate the Torah. Instead, what he's doing is he's basically taking the Torah and collapsing it down into these two commandments. And he says, all of the Torah and the prophets hinge on these two things. That doesn't say these two commandments then wipe out the Torah. Instead, he says, all of the Torah really rests on our understanding that it's really just commentary of our love for God and our love for one another. He also talks about the idea of hate, that a person who hates his brother cannot say that he loves God for he is a liar. 
wow, that's tough. <laughs> this is why, as we've mentioned before, Yeshua says, it's easy to love the person who loves you back. Instead, I say, pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemy. This is what we're called to do. And it is not easy, but it is the path that is right. It is the path that is holy. It is the path that is noble. And it's the path that is missing in our society today. That unless you think and do exactly like me, then you are clearly more than just off the deep end. There is something spiritually wrong with you. Instead of recognizing, as we talked about last week, that the kingdom of God is not affiliated with a political party, it's not affiliated with a particular philosophy or theology. The kingdom of God is something greater. And we, sh and we need to always be careful that we're not being bogged down by the things of the world. Over and over and over again, this is the dichotomy that John keeps repeating over and over and over again. You are either of the world or you are of God, but you can't be both. Obviously, that doesn't mean that we are not actively involved in the world in which we live. The question is, what are you of? What are you of? What is your substance? What makes up who you are? Remember, garbage in, garbage out. Whatever we choose to make our primary food, spiritual food, is really going to be who we are. We are what we eat. The more that we are living in the world of the Spirit. That we're spending time in Scripture, all of these things, building up one another, spending time with one another, then we are spiritually growing. In this concluding section of John 4, John challenges us again about our love for one another. By contrasting love and hate, John alludes to his earlier reference in the last chapter where he associates hate with who? if anybody remembers from last week. He associates hate with Cain, right? Why Cain? Because again, in this context, everyone who hates their brother is like Cain, who hated his brother for loving rightly before God. And hate leads to what? Murder. It's what he associated in last week. For John, a person who cannot love one another cannot love God. Again, as I was, I mentioned this quote last week from the wise green sage Yoda, Yoda <laughs> that it seemed even more fitting here of talking about love and hate and fear, not to have fear, right? Where he says, mm. <laughs> fear, fear is from the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. In this chapter, we learn two important lessons that we really need to absorb and take into our lives. That we must constantly test what we're being taught. Maturity is learning to weigh and discern that which we put into our spiritual selves. We also have to work harder at love in action. According to Karen Jobes, the scholar I quoted earlier, personal knowledge of God and love for others, as God defines it, are inseparable. John's exhortation therefore implicitly demands self-examination. The whole point of all of this 
James writes, the Torah, or really all of scripture, serves as a mirror. We look at it and we go, oh God, I don't like what I see. Or we look at it and there are times that, you know what? I might fall short. I might look at it and I have a little less hair and a few other things. But there are also things that I do like to see. Ways in which I'm being changed from glory to glory, from one degree of holiness into another. John is constantly telling us and warning us that we need to be people that walk in the light as he is in the light. Because by doing so, it's the only way we're really going to be able to have an impact in the world around us. Avinu Shabbat Shemayim, our Father in heaven. I pray that you would work deep within us, that we would really hear John's message. That this is the teachings of one of the actual apostles who spent time at the feet of Yeshua, who sat in the dust of his rabbi's feet. And he's conveying to us the importance of not being led astray, that there's so many shiny balls out there that catch our attention and not to get distracted. And also not to lose sight and lose a grip on the teachings that were passed down to us from the apostles. God, help us to love in a way that we don't. Help us to love in a way that is sacrificial. Help us to love in a way that puts others before ourselves. Not in a way which is, we're not taking care of ourselves, but in a way in which we exalt other people by humbling ourselves. God, help us to do what is right, to follow in the ways and in the conviction of Torah and of the Ruach of the Spirit. Help us love one another so that we can reflect to the world that we are really, truly your disciples. Bind us together, all of us as one, by the light of your countenance. Pray this in the name of Yeshua. Amen.